Take your Bible with me uh, and turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We have a lot to cover this morning, and, uh, and I want to make sure that we allow time to do so. How many of you ever heard the name uh, L. Nelson Bell? L. Nelson Bell. A couple of people. Good. Uh, Lemuel Nelson Bell was a medical missionary to China uh, in the early to mid-1900s, and the father, this name will probably be more familiar, the father of Ruth Bell, who would later marry Billy Graham. Well, when Ruth was just a little girl growing up in, in China, she had an odd attraction to martyrdom. Uh, her and her sister Rosa grew up hearing stories of martyrdom uh, among missionaries and Chinese believers, testimonies that affected Ruth so deeply that uh, the story goes that she prayed almost daily that she would die as a martyr for Christ. Little girl, praying almost daily that she would die as a martyr for Christ and hopefully before the end of the year. (laughs) And uh, her older sister Rosa was stunned by these prayers, shocked by these prayers, at times even appalled by these prayers. So every night when, when Ruth prayed in this manner... Rosa would follow with a prayer of her own, Lord, don't you pay any attention to her. (laughs) Unlike a young Ruth Bell, very few of us, even the most devout among us, desire to die as a martyr for Christ. A martyr is someone who is killed because of their religious beliefs, and to this day, to this day, followers of Jesus Christ are martyred in places all over the world. Killed for no other reason than their faith in the Lord. Only God, I I took some time this week just to try to brush up on statistics, but the statistics are really quite overwhelming. Only God really knows how many men and women have paid such a high price over the years. But we do know where Christian martyrdom began. It began in the first century, just outside the city of Jerusalem, when a man named Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. It began in Acts chapter 7, and it has continued, and ever, has continued ever since. Acts chapter 7, this is part 2 of what we began last week. Acts chapter 7 finds Stephen appearing before the leaders of Jerusalem. He's been falsely accused of undermining God's law and of speaking against God's temple, and he's being questioned accordingly. But as we saw, as you may remember from last Sunday, when a person truly trusts in Jesus, when when he or she truly, like from the core of their being, 
trusts in Jesus and thus discovers the infilling of the Holy Spirit, there is nowhere you can go and nothing you can do and nothing that can be done to you to keep you from the love of God in Christ. And so Stephen speaks. Stephen stands. And ultimately, Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. And yet his legacy lives on. For although following Jesus does come with cost, our all-surpassing victory in Jesus is well worth the price. So what I want to do now is I'd like to read the whole of chapter 7. There's a lot here. 60 verses. And it's a bird's eye overview of some Old Testament history. It may appear to ramble at times, but as we will soon see, Stephen's not rambling at all. He actually has a very clear point uh, to be made. You remember, so picture him there. He's standing before the Jewish council. He's being accused of of speaking against God's law and God's temple. And the high priest asks, are these things so? And in verse 2, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, And great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. 
and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he, brought, he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, And I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea, And in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of, of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen turns to the council in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. For which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word as it's recorded here in Acts chapter 7. There is much here for us to cover today, much for us to learn. And so we pray now, as we always do, we pray now for the enabling of the Holy Spirit, that we would hear your voice, that we would learn your word, and that we would become receivers and doers of it to the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. So it's important for us to understand the nature and purpose of Stephen's speech. It may appear to ramble at times. It's the longest recorded speech or sermon in the book of Acts. But it's essentially Stephen's answer to the question posed in verse 1 when the high priest asked, Are these things so? 
Again, Stephen had been accused of speaking against God's law and temple, supposedly saying that Jesus, or yeah, that that that, uh, that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the law that had been delivered by Moses to the people of Israel. Now, how would Stephen answer these trumped-up charges? He answered in verses two through fifty-three by speaking of God's faithfulness, number one, and Israel's rebellion, number two, pointing out how God promised to bless His people and how God has been faithful to His promise ever since. Stephen goes back to the beginning as far as the children of Israel are concerned to the call of Abraham in verse 2, Uh, And then the births of Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs in verse 8. And in retelling Abraham's story, Stephen traces God's promise to call a people to himself and lead them into the land of promise despite the unknowns, despite the opposition, despite all the circumstances that suggested otherwise. In retelling Joseph's story, Verses 9 through 16, Stephen is recounting how the people of Israel ended up in Egypt and how what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Despite the treachery of Joseph's brothers, despite Joseph's unjust imprisonment, despite the passing of many languishing years, God spared both Egypt and Israel by raising Joseph to prominence at just the right time. Then in retelling Moses' story, verses 17 through 43, Stephen traced how God's people grew in Egypt and how the Egyptians, under the leadership of another king, grew fearful and turned against the people of Israel by murdering their infant sons. And yet amazingly, Moses was spared, and God exalted him to deliver Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. So despite the genocide, despite Moses' fear and reluctance, despite the hard-heartedness of the Israelite people, despite their idolatry and wilderness wanderings, God remained faithful. So, though Stephen was being accused of speaking against Moses and God, he's actually saying that it's Israel that's been in rebellion throughout. Moses received the law to give to Israel, verse 38, yet the people rejected Moses, verse 39. They turned back to Egypt in their hearts. The people worshipped false gods, verse 40. They sacrificed to idols, verse 41. So God gave them over to their idolatry, verse 42. Even though they still made sacrifice to God, they worshipped Moloch and Rephan as images made with uh, human hands. Verse 43. Israel has a history of refusing God. That's what Stephen is saying. So he wasn't rejecting Moses. They were. Neither was he rejecting the temple. 
God had been faithful in their rebellion to provide the, ta- uh, the tabernacle as a tangible sign of His presence with them. The tabernacle was brought into the promised land by Joshua. And there, Israel rose to prominence under King David, who wanted to build a temple to replace the tabernacle which finally occurred under David's son Solomon. And yet by uh, recounting this history from Joshua to David to Solomon, Stephen is actually stressing that God is greater than the temple. For He doesn't dwell in houses made by hands, verse 45. He's bigger than that. He's greater than that. We cannot confine God in that way because as God has made clear in verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you possibly build for me? Stephen wasn't rejecting the temple at all. He'd come to understand what they should have understood already, that God is greater than the temple and in fact, that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all that, that the temple stood for. So that's essentially verses 2 through 40, 2 through 50, 2 through 50. And then he turns and he says, you stiff-necked people. Don't you get it? God's promise to Abraham ultimately pointed to the Messiah. Joseph's life, Joseph, his life pointed the Messiah. The life of Moses pointed to the Messiah. Just as Joseph and Moses uh, delivered the people of Israel, so would the one who was to come, and yet you're missing it. You're like those who Moses supposed would understand, verse 25, but didn't. Instead, you're like the man who said to Moses in verse 27, who made you a ruler and judge? That's how you treated Jesus, he's saying. You're rebelling against the righteous one whom God has sent, just as your forefathers did before you. Israel has been res- uh, resisting God's representatives for centuries, and now you're continuing in their rebellion. Stiff-necked, meaning stubborn and intractable. Uncircumcised in your heart and ears, meaning unwilling to change, unwilling to even listen. Unteachable, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Instead of learning from the error of their father's ways, they continued in those same errors by betraying and murdering Jesus and by opposing those who followed Jesus. Though they knew God's law, they did, And though they made a show of keeping God's law, in reality, they didn't keep it at all. And so, basically, Stephen is saying, I'm not the one on trial here. You are. 
And you can imagine, as we see, how that went down. And yet, by confronting them in this way, I think Stephen was actually appealing for their repentance. Just as God remained faithful to His promise despite the rebellion of their forefathers, they too could find hope in God's faithfulness if they were just to humble themselves and resist their pride and grab hold of the gift God has given them in Jesus Christ. Sadly, however, when they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever been so angry that you've, you've ground your teeth? Like your jaw clenches and your mouth closes like a vice and your teeth just begin grinding. That's what's going on here. They are seething inside. They're about to boil over. Their flesh, their carnal nature is completely taking over, but not Stephen's. Stephen remained full of the Holy Spirit. He looked heavenward to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. And he said, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was all it took. That was all they could take. They cried out in a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rush at Stephen. They grabbed him. They take him by force. They carry him out of the city and they stone him to death. And as they're stoning him, Stephen, what's he doing? As they're stoning him, Stephen's praying. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't demand a fair trial. All he does is pray. He prays two prayers. He prays for himself and for his attackers. For himself, he asks Jesus to receive his spirit. And for his attackers, he asks Jesus to forgive their sins. And when he had prayed these prayers, he died. He went to sleep in this world and woke up in the presence of God in heaven. And Stephen here serves as an example for us. Stephen's response here, when they are literally throwing stones and crushing him, he looks to God. As everything and, and everyone around him pressed in, when from a human perspective the circumstance appeared bleak and hopeless, he looked to heaven to see the glory of God. And I just have to ask, church, is that not a good model for us? Is it not good for us to look to God in any and every circumstance, particularly when those circumstances move from bad to worse? 
And as he looked, he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. The right hand of God, of course, as you know, it represents God's, uh, it just represents absolute authority and rule. It is the seat of power in the entire universe. And there was Jesus reminding Stephen that he is Lord, that he has everything under control, that he is sovereign over all, that as fierce as Stephen's enemies appeared in that moment, Jesus still reigns from heaven's throne. And yet, he is not seated. He's standing. You know, typically when Scripture uh, pictures Jesus or talks about Jesus uh, at the throne of God, it pictures him seated, which is typical for kings uh, on their thrones. But here Jesus is standing, and I think he's standing to affirm Stephen, to commend and vindicate Stephen, to receive and welcome Stephen, to assure Stephen that it's all worth it, that he is Christ's, and that Christ is his. How encouraging is that for us today? Even if you're not under any persecution this morning, certainly there have been times when life, right? When life seems to spin out of control and you're at the mercy of everyone and everything around you. Will you look to Jesus and see him upon the throne? Behold him there, the risen lamb, as we read, as we sung this morning. My perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Only as we look to Jesus, when we see Him from, when we see from that vantage point, only then can we pray with understanding. Stephen knew the end was near. And so looking to Jesus, he committed himself, he, his spirit, that part of us that remains after death, he committed his spirit to Jesus. Hear me on this. Your supreme concern in life should be the eternal well-being of your spirit. To whom have you entrusted your spirit? To, the, to those things that cannot save or to the Savior himself? And after entrusting himself to Jesus, Stephen's final prayer was for his enemies, his persecutors. Like Jesus from the cross, remember? Uh, Stephen's concern was for their eternity too. And so he asked the Lord to be merciful to them as well. I've just found in life, uh, don't, don't misunderstand this, I'm not suggesting anything to this level of severity, but I've just found in life that those people who I find difficult 
or who come against me and attack me. And, and, and again, not in this way. That there is nothing like changing my heart toward them than praying for them. And if you will take those people in your life who are always at you, they're always against you, they're always opposed, if you will begin to pray for them, just watch what God will do, not only in their lives, but perhaps even more in your own. Make no mistake, Stephen's example is worth following. His legacy is worth living. And so I want to close in the remaining time we have with three additional overarching observations concerning Stephen that apply to our lives today. The first is, I want you to see uh, Jesus. See Jesus as the center of your story. See Jesus as the center of your story. Stephen saw Jesus at the center of the history he recounted. Beginning with Abraham. And though the members of the council knew the same history in terms of the historical facts themselves, they missed the point because they failed to see how all those facts, all those circumstances, how everything pointed to Jesus in some way. And their failure not only kept them from understanding Jesus, it also prevented them from understanding themselves. And we shouldn't miss this because what Stephen is saying is so relevant to us today. Because whatever you're living for, whatever your life story consists of, whatever narrative you're writing each day is incomplete and ultimately fruitless if Jesus is not at the center of it. When you're at work, how is Jesus at the center of your employment? When you're at school, though school just ended. When you're at school, how is Jesus at the center of your education? When you're at home, how is Jesus at the center? Couples, spouses, how is Jesus at the center of your marriage? Singles, how is Jesus at the center of your singleness? How is he the main character of your family, your friendships, the varied relationships you share? Parents, how is Jesus shaping your family? Empty nesters, what is Jesus saying to you at this stage in your life? Retirees, in what ways is Jesus at the center of your retirement years? And then I want to say to those who, who, who may not be Christians, 
Every one of us, you included, was made to live within the story of Jesus. History is his story, meaning that your story is lacking unless he's at the center of it. But in reality, you don't need me to tell you that because the underlying sense of incompletion and unrest and dissatisfaction in your life is already telling you that you were made for so much more. We're made for relationship. We're meant for relationship with God, but our pursuit of lesser things uh, severed that relationship. And so Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, and reigns from heaven today to restore that union, that relationship. He took all your wrongs upon Himself to make you right with God again, and He stands ready to save ready to receive, ready to welcome you, but you must turn and look Godward. You must see the glory of God in Christ and entrust your spirit, yourself, to Him as Stephen did. You see, Jesus is what it's all about. He's the one who makes sense of everything else going on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to to Joseph to Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. All these and more had God and God's promise in Jesus at the center of their story. And so do you. See Jesus at the center of your story. Number two. Be willing to live for Jesus, not simply die for Jesus. Let me me explain this, what I'm thinking here. I believe, I believe most of us in this room, I, I do, I believe most of us in this room, perhaps all of us, are willing to die for Jesus if it came to that. If persecution came and the choice was either deny Christ or else, most of us in that moment would choose or else. However, as true as that may be, That's not the harder choice. The harder choice is not in choosing to die for Jesus. The harder choice is in choosing to live for Jesus. Though we we may be willing to lose our lives, if it came to that, are we willing to lose our jobs? Are we willing to lose our acceptance? Are we willing to lose our social capital? Are we willing to lose our many creature comforts? Are we willing to stand for Jesus as Stephen did in life as well as in death? Stephen wasn't looking for martyrdom. He didn't know what was coming next, 
but he didn't know what was worth standing for. In the same way, you can't plan for persecution, but if you walk with Jesus now, you will stand for Jesus then. In fact, could it be said that you're not ready to die for him until you're willing to live for him? Be willing to live for Jesus, not simply die for him. Number three, third and finally. Allow your life and even your death to impact others in ways you cannot possibly foresee. Look with me at verse 58. In verse 58, Luke says that Stephen's stoning took place before a young man named Saul. And though a young man, Saul obviously was a man of authority because people are laying their garments down at his feet as a show of respect. Saul approved of Stephen's execution according to verse 1 of chapter 8. And as we read in chapter 8 verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church. Saul was threatening Christians Saul was imprisoning Christians. Saul was even murdering Christians. And yet, by the time we get to chapter 9, Saul is confronted by Jesus himself, and Saul actually becomes a Christian. And there is no question in my mind that Stephen played an enormous role in Saul's conversion. He wasn't there, of course, when Saul came to Christ, but Saul was there when Stephen lived and died for Christ. Realize that Stephen's greatest contribution historically came through his martyrdom. Saul was not converted by seeing Stephen delivered. He was converted in part because because he had watched Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, testify to the glory of God at the risk of his own life. You know, they say that you can tell a lot about a person with how he or she faces death, and Stephen faced death so well that I'm absolutely convinced that seeds of the gospel were sown in Saul's heart that day, seeds that took root and eventually bore a harvest of faith in Saul's life just as they had in Stephen's. And of course, Saul became the Apostle Paul, and God was pleased to send Paul out into the far reaches of the known world at that time with the message of Jesus. And Paul must have talked uh, with Luke, who accompanied him on many of those travels. He must have talked with Luke about Stephen and about Stephen's death. And so Luke included this detail that Saul was standing in approval while Stephen was being killed for his faith because it seems that Paul wants us to know that Stephen's life affected him. 
that Stephen's death impacted him and that Paul was living proof that Stephen's dying prayer that God would not hold Saul's sin against him was answered. So do not think, church, please hear this. I'm speaking to myself as well. Do not think for one moment that your life cannot impact others. No matter your age, no matter your season in life, no matter your background, how you face life and how you face death matters to those who are watching you, who are listening to you, who are thinking about what it all means for them. I want you to think about the souls in your life. People who want nothing to do with Jesus right now. They want nothing to do with Jesus right now. Who may even be against Jesus. Imagine them meeting Jesus and being utterly transformed by Jesus, then becoming ambassadors for Jesus in the world. And then I want you to imagine that it's your life. It's your life that's going to impact theirs. It's your words. It's your behavior. It's your witness for Christ. What if, what if, church, what if you are the Stephen to the Saul's in your life? Throughout history, God does extraordinary work through ordinary people like us. One last tidbit before we close. Thank you for your patience. I know we're a little over time. But this is, this is so good. Did you know that Stephen's name means crown? There are two words in the New Testament for crown. One is diadema, from which we get the word diadem. And the other is stephanos which refers to the victor's crown and from which we get the word, the name Stephen. You see, you can inherit a diadema, but the only way to get a Stephanos, the only way to get a Stephanos is to earn it. This crown is reserved specifically for those who overcome. And so what was on one hand a solemn moment that resulted in Stephen's death 
was also a time of great triumph that resulted in new life like never before. A time of triumph for Stephen and for the church because it was this event that catapulted the church out from Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of our world. Stephen's death became Stephen's victory that marked victory after victory in the advance of the gospel. So, although following Jesus does come with cost, loved ones, it does. Our all-surpassing victory in Jesus renders the price well worth it. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for our time. Please impress upon us. Continue throughout the day and this week and day by day. Impress these truths upon us. Make us to be men and women who stand, who speak. Give us the words to speak in those moments, the courage to stand, who stand and speak in life and in death, that we may live in the fullness of this victory that is ours in Jesus Christ and in the advance of His gospel in places near and far. And we ask this for His glory and for the good of the church. Amen.